Well, so we are talking, of course, today about faith and suffering as we continue this series called Faith And. We've talked about faith and doubt. We've talked about faith in politics, faith in science, faith in culture. And uh, today we're talking faith and suffering. And I have to tell you, I'm really um, looking forward to this conversation. You know, Jessica and I got together a couple weeks ago and we talked for like three hours at Starbucks. Yep. (laughs) Um, We're not going to talk for three hours today, I promise. We do. Um, But uh, that's what pastors do. We get together and we talk and talk. But it was really good. And so uh, um, I I really think that what we have here today is um, one of the most meaningful and important discussions that we can have. This, This subject matter is so important. It actually grew out of a question that you all raised uh, in our first um, uh, discussion in this series. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why do we have to suffer? Why is there evil, pain, and suffering in the world? And so we're going to kind of deal with some of those things today. But before we get to all that, I would like for you to introduce yourself. I know you've been here a couple times before, but maybe not everybody knows exactly who you are and what your backstory is a little bit. So if you could uh, just introduce us a little bit, that'd be great. I'd be glad to. Well, and also when I came last time, you know, I was here to preach and it wasn't so intensely personal. So um, I hope after today you're able to say she's not just like a Debbie Downer. I hope that there's some hope out of this. Um, As Adam said, my name's Jessica Wright and um, currently I'm associate pastor at uh, First United Methodist Church in Allen. I grew up in Arkansas My mom is a Jew from the Bronx, and my dad um, was primarily an alcoholic. He struggled with that addiction his whole life. Um, They divorced when I was in middle school, and I lived with my mom. And um, my dad confessed various faiths throughout his life, but when he died, he would have said that he was uh, four square gospel. He would say that he could go out on his back porch and turn the storm um, by power of his faith. And so that was, those were his convictions um, I'll gloss over a lot of this because we only have a certain amount of time, right? So um, <laughs> I met my husband, Andy, when we were both in high school band. I didn't know he was going to be my husband. I just thought he was a cute boy who played saxophone. Um, you need for band. Right? It's a thing. <laughs> so um, I, was, I would not call myself a Christian then. Um, when I, so growing up in the South, uh, you know, if you spent the night with someone on a Saturday night, if you have a sleepover on Sunday morning, you were probably going to go to church with them. That was just an expectation. So my mom was fine with that. We had a good set of clothes that she would put in the sleeping bag stuff. And um, she would say, Jessica, you know, go have fun, learn, think, explore, uh, but be careful of places that uh, handle snakes. Don't touch the snakes. <laughs> and be careful of places that ask for money. Oops. That's like all of us. I know, it's all of us. So um, those were her caveats. Um, So I know that when I was growing up, I had a powerful experience. Um, I was in the balcony with my friend at whatever church we were in. I don't remember what kind of church it was. I just knew that the preacher had a big voice, and it echoed, and there was stained glass, and it was, you know, I was just looking forward to playing the tic-tac-toe. There were no smartphones. The most fun we could have during service was playing (laughs) tic-tac-toe. Um, so it came to be the welcome time. We got up. I had the uh, visitor sticker prominently displayed, and the guy next to me said, oh, so where does your family go to church? Because, right, that's the assumption, right? Arkansas in the 1980s, where does your family go to church? Uh, and I said, my family doesn't go to church. We're Jewish. And that was a problem. 
because uh, he looked back at me and said, well, then your family's going to hell. So I didn't go to church again uh, until I was in college, and it wasn't a church. It was a Wesley Foundation, and it was only because my money started running out, and I had a friend who was really persistent in her invitations, and she kept promising me food. They have a free lunch. You should come. She kept inviting. I kept asking questions. Finally, she convinced me that they wouldn't tell me I was going to hell at this Wesley Foundation, uh, that I could safely have a hamburger. And no snakes, right? Right. No snakes at the Wesley. <laughs> uh, so I was able to um, start with lunch and then, you know, discover that the people were kind of nice. And so from there, um, went to worship and from there went to Bible study because I had a lot of questions about this Jesus person. Um, and that was how I became a Christian was through that Wesley Foundation. And then ended up in Texas following my husband. He was accepted to the University of North Texas to do a master's program. Um, ended up working at a church because with a bachelor's in English, that's something you can do. Um, and so um, ended up feeling called to ministry out of my experiences there and went to seminary and here we are. So my current family, married to Andy, um, this Friday, it will be 16 years. Wow. Because we were babies when we got married. Um, and he we just. Were two. Right? <laughs> we were babies. Like, we're going to have these big numbers, even though we're still very young. Um, so. Very young. Very. Yes. <laughs> so, he just finished a couple of years ago a doctorate uh, in, saxoph- in uh, musical arts in saxophone, and he's an adjunct professor up at Grayson College in Denison. Uh, he teaches private lessons. Um, that is something unique and wonderful to Texas. And um, we have two sons at home. James is seven and Ethan is three. And then we have one son who is with God, uh, Brennan. And on, in July, he will, it will be uh, five years. So um, yeah. that's our family. There you go. <clears throat> I remember <clears throat> hearing about uh, your son Brennan, you know, a while back, and, and I didn't know the whole story. I gotten, uh, you know, I think you told me the, the brief version of it, and um, it, it's kind of what got me to thinking as we were uh, wondering about how to deal with faith and suffering, uh, it got me thinking, well, I wonder if Jessica would be willing to come and, and talk with us a little bit about that experience. Um, and so I, I, if you would, just uh, tell us a little bit Kind of tell us that story. Let us know um, uh, how that happened and exactly what the circumstances were. And I know that was a that was a tough year in particular for you. In in uh, 2013, you had also lost your father and your grandfather mm-hmm. that year. So True. kind of a lot of loss in the midst of that. It all stacked yeah. up. Yeah. Um, 2013. I know y'all have probably felt this. Like there are certain years you just can't wait to see in the rear view. Yeah. Um, that was definitely uh, that year. My so. Since my parents divorced when I was in middle school, like, my grandpa was that guy in my life. Like, he was the one who walked me down the aisle. He was that man in my life um, for all, you know, his own flaws. Um, He passed in May of that year, early May. um, And being a pastor, I did that service Mm -hmm. because, you know, who's going to bury the old Jew from the Bronx except (laughs) his Methodist granddaughter? And, um, yeah, so I was pregnant for that. so I was always a really happy pregnant woman. My first pregnancy with James um, went relatively easily. I didn't have any morning sickness. I was a little more tired than usual in the first trimester. I look back at pregnant Jessica now, and I'm like, you don't even know tired. What are you talking about? 
Um, but honestly, like I felt beautiful and powerful. I felt like I was assisting God with a miracle, right? Like we're bringing forth life together, you and me, God. We're doing this. This is so exciting. Uh, and my second pregnancy generally felt the same way. It was a little harder while chasing a two-year-old, right? Uh, but otherwise, it seemed to be going the same way. Um, and I felt good about it because I felt like I was an expert. I had read the books. I knew all the long list of things to avoid because, right, they scare pregnant women so much with all the things that you're not supposed to do, touch, eat, breathe. Uh, and so I knew what to avoid. And it was even more fun because my sister was pregnant. Um, I was due in November. She was due in September. And we were just, we were thinking this was the most wonderful thing ever, right? We were going to have these beautiful children who had grew up together, who'd be close, they'd be cousins. It would be great. Um, and so on July 2nd of that year, uh, everything changed, right? So I, uh, it was a typical Tuesday. I'd had meetings all morning. I had run errands. I'd had a quick lunch. I'd gone to pick up the sonogram disc uh, because I was working with a midwife this time because the first pregnancy had gone so well. Um, so I went to the medical center to pick up the sonogram because we had, my mom had flown into town the weekend before. We discovered we were having another baby boy and uh, so picked that up. I went by and uh, picked up the present for my sister's baby shower because that next weekend I was going to go home to Arkansas. We were going to have a joint baby shower for the two of us. And things were just moving and blowing. I picked up James from school, uh, got home, got things started for dinner, you know, pots on the stove, water boiling, um, kid firmly in front of the television set, which is my cue to have like a couple minutes that I can actually go to the bathroom by myself. <laughs> so went to the bathroom and um, felt something shift that shouldn't. Um, and I was concerned. And I came out and uh, he was still good. Andy got home and Andy said, why is there smoke in the house? I hadn't noticed that dinner was now burning on the stove because I was laying on my bed. Um, calling the midwife and saying, what should I do? Here's what I'm feeling. And she said, you should come in. And so I turned to my husband, Andy, and said, um, I have to go in. And he said, okay. So he turned off all the burners, took the burning stuff off, scooped up our kid, and out the door we went, went to the midwife, um, got up on the exam table. She took one look at me and said, okay, you're going to the hospital, which is never what you want to hear. So um, that was when I started crying. We called a family friend. She met us in the hospital parking lot, and we handed her our two-year-old. We said, we have no diaper bag. We left the house without it. Uh, here is our garage door clicker. Go in our house and get whatever you need. We have no idea how long it will be. And so she took him, and she'd left in the middle of prepping dinner for her own family, and she just scooped him up, took him home. These are the people you want in your tribe, people who will just do this sort of thing. So we walked into the hospital. And we went up to the labor and delivery unit, which is where you go when you're pregnant, no matter what's happening. And so we went up, and um, I said who I was at the desk, and that was when I really got an idea of how bad it was, right? Because everyone went, and just surrounded me. Um, they got me in. They got the IV going. They got the scan. They got the, you know, the, the technician in. He's, you know, they're bearing me to, to be able to see what's going on. And, and all these people are moving so quickly. They turn me upside down uh, to get gravity on our side. This is called Trendelenburg position. It's, it's not comfortable at all. It puts all your weight on your shoulders and your neck and your head because you're trying to make gravity work with you. Um, because what had shifted was my bag of waters. It was not where it was supposed to be anymore. And they're reading the sonogram 
Uh, and I, it's right here by my head. And so I'm looking too because I've seen these, right? This is my second pregnancy. I kind of know what I'm looking for. We're right. at 20 weeks and change. And I see his beautiful, strong heartbeat. And I see his arms and his legs. And I can even tell, layperson that I am, um, that my cervix is completely dilated. It is gone. It is 10 centimeters. It is just gone. So um, the midwife who received me looked kind of grim. And um, the plan at that point was to try and keep you stable for as long as possible, right? Right. The doctor came in and explained our options, right? So the option is you stay here and you stay in this position and um, we try to keep this baby in because at 20 weeks and change, you're not yet viable. It's a terrible word, but that's the word for it. Um, you are, the, the child is not viable, cannot survive without the mom. And so um, we called our parents and my mom booked a flight uh, for the very next day, early as morning as she could. My in-laws drove through the night. Uh, my husband, uh, he's 6'3", and he pulled out that, like it's the chair thing, you know, that's supposed to become a bed that's the most uncomfortable bed on earth. Uh, and he was there. And I was just crying, and, and so when his parents, or no, before his parents got there, sometime earlier that evening, I looked at him trying to sleep down there, and I thought of my own child with our friend in a strange place at, you know, two years old, and I said, you should just go home, like, get James, take him home, let him sleep in his own bed, and you sleep in our bed, and, you know, because there's nothing you can do for me here. And uh, in his reflection, that's one of the worst things that can happen is when you are with your loved one and there's nothing you can do. Things just kind of are. So he went home. I knew his parents had arrived because he came back and he set up shop again on, on the uncomfortable bed. Um, I decided sometime in the middle of that night that we might need a name sooner than we had anticipated because mm -hmm. they told us, right? So they used a lot of ifs, like... If you make it for the next few days, then we'll transfer you to a specialty hospital in Dallas. But there was a big if to get through. So I started looking up names. I'd, I'd kind of planned to use the name William after my grandfather. Uh, it's Jewish custom not to name someone after someone else until they pass. And so I was excited about uh, honoring my grandpa that way. And... Um, but I, I also knew that I didn't want to send that name to the grave, potentially. So I was looking for a different name, and I came upon the name Brennan, which means a man of sorrow. So um, I had that name ready. In the hospital, I was surrounded by all these kind nurses and doctors. Um, if you don't know this, they put a special marker on the name section by the door in the hospital. If you're on labor and delivery and you've got a not-so-good outcome, probably. Um, so that people don't walk into your room up and happy because that is not what's happening in that space. Right. Uh, in my hospital, it happened to be like a little white artificial rose. I saw it later. Um, so that they knew to come in with the right comportment. But I couldn't help but ask them because I could hear, like, tell me about the other babies. How many babies have arrived? Are they healthy? How are they doing? How are the mamas? Because I just wanted to know that other people were still taking babies home. Right. That there was still hope and joy and news. life, right, <clears throat> happening outside of my little room. Um, on July 4th, so 
was there two nights on July 4th, sometime that morning. Um, I just knew. I just, I just knew. Things were shifting despite their best efforts. And so a little before noon, I told my mom, who is now at my bedside, um, I think I need the doctor. I think it's time. And they said, oh, okay. And it's not like there were any contractions. There weren't to indicate that this was the time. I just, you know, sometimes you just know things in your bones. And I knew. Um, So again, all the people rushed into the room and surrounded me. And I pushed. And I cried because I knew that he wasn't going to survive. If I pushed him out, his precious, beautiful, desired little baby was going to die. It wasn't his fault. There was nothing wrong with him. He was perfect and healthy. It was something wrong with me, my body. My body failed in what it should be. So um, he was born, and I could feel the movement of his legs against my legs. He was born breech. And the the, um, doctor had asked earlier, looking over my legs, right? Because that's always the position you want to be in when you're talking to doctors. Um, She said, do you want to have your baby baptized? Now, I don't know that this doctor knows what I do for a living. Uh, And I know that in some faiths, it is uh, necessary. They believe that original sin attaches itself even to newborn babies um, and that that is necessary for salvation. I don't. I think we are created so wonderfully good, and yes, we have free will, and we can turn away, and we can make choices later in life, but I had every confidence that uh, when my baby was born, God was going to be there with the doctor catching my baby. One was going to catch the body, the other was going to catch the soul, and it was, I had every confidence. I didn't have to worry about, was my baby going to be saved? Was my baby going to be in heaven? So... I also uh, had decided that um, I didn't want to see him. That's a very personal choice. Every person who comes to this point in the road has to decide that. Um, whether or not you want to give this child a name, and that's a personal choice. Whether or not you want to have a funeral service, all these things, very unique to each individual and each circumstance. So um, while I definitely wanted to name my baby, I had known him forever. I knew him intimately, and I knew I didn't need to see him in that moment. Um, and my husband decided that was the same for him. And so he was up by my head and I was holding his hand and he was delivered. And my mom followed the nurse out the door and she saw him. And he was beautiful, skinny, but beautiful. And uh, the hospital does some beautiful things. They took pictures of his feet. I have these great little pictures of his perfect little feet that I knew intimately because they had been kicking my ribs and jumping on my bladder. And so now I have this memento. I have a hat that they put on his head uh, that, you know, was one of the pieces of clothing that I would have that he had worn. And uh, so at 12.08 on Thursday, July 4th, uh, at exactly 21 weeks of pregnancy, um, Brennan was born. And then uh, not too long after that, I was released from the hospital because, I mean, seriously, I was healthy in every other way. Mm. Uh, So I went home, and it was like the world had lost color, you know? I felt like Dorothy Mm. in uh, in The Wizard of Oz, you know, uh, not in Oz. And um, I felt really adrift. You know, here I am. I'm a person of faith. I'm a pastor. And I felt adrift. 
um, honestly, like a, like a balloon, right? Like a helium balloon that has just floated away from the earth. And the one little tether that held me to the ground was my son, James. He was two. He needed me. I was pretty confident that everybody else in my life would be fine <laughs> either way. Uh, but James needed me. And it was a good thing. He, he rooted me. He tethered me to the earth for those first two days. So um, after that, I felt like I needed something to take my mind off things. Because what are you supposed to do when you're grieving? Like sit home and think about it all day? So I went up to the church. I had a laptop that was waiting for me in the church office. And I thought, I'll just grab my laptop. I'll grab a few things. I'll do some work. This will be good. It'll keep me busy. And in the hallway, I ran into one of my members of the congregation. And they knew because we had shared the information on Facebook because... Honestly, that was for me to tell the most people in the way that was most distant because it hurt. I did not want to answer the phone. I didn't want to talk about it, but I needed people to know because everybody knew I was at 21 weeks. It's supposed to be safe territory. So um, she came up to me and she said, oh, Jessica, I know just how you're feeling. I lost a child. And you know what the priest said to me that was the most helpful thing was that he said, God just needed another rose for his garden. So, um, my husband does not know how I held it together so well, because I can tell you, like, just the anger, just the wild surge of burning anger. That was not helpful for you. <laughs> not helpful. Like, have you seen the movie um, Inside Out? Like, the guy and he, the flames just erupt from his head? Like, that was me. Uh, but what I said to her was, um, if that was helpful for you in that season, I'm so glad. And then I went away. Because... I understand she was trying to offer comfort. It was just not the most helpful way to do it. It's really hard. Um, in contrast, the next Sunday, um, I knew I needed to be in church. I didn't need to be in my church where I'm pastor, um, but I needed to be in church because I needed to worship God and I needed to be reassured of God's faithfulness. I just needed to be with God. And so uh, I picked a, a buddy's church. <laughs> who, another United Methodist church in the area. Um, and I went to church and I thought, you know what? I'll do this thing that I hear happens. Like I'll slip in, I'll sit in the back. I'll be, you know, I'll put up that, that energy that says, don't talk to me, don't come too close to me. I'll put up the energy and then I will slip out. Like This was my plan. No one has to know I'm here. I just want to be in worship. I don't necessarily want to be with people. So I'm in the back. Well, one of their lay leaders volunteered with a mission project at my church and she saw me and she went and got a box of tissues and she just dropped them off next to me and she made eye contact and she just kept walking and I thought oh good that's probably a good idea and then it was my friend's first Sunday in his new church and he walked in and he went to the front and he sat down and then like one of the members of SPRC was escorting his wife because she had a special seat up front as well And she saw me as she walked by. Now, this couple, they have also lost a child. Um, And I'll talk about them maybe a little bit later. Um, But she had lost a child maybe the year before. And um, she saw me there. And she went up, and she almost sat in her seat. But then she decided to come back and sit with me. And she just sat there. And she didn't ask me anything. She didn't expect anything of me. She just sat with me. Mm. 
and uh, worshipped with me and mm. and offered me a real and tangible presence of the presence of God with me in mm. the moment. Mm. And it was beautiful. And it was such a grace-filled offering. Um, and she's just become one of my mentors and inspirations in this journey. Um, but it was exactly what I needed. It was, it was like Job's friends before they mess up in the story, <laughs> right. right? So Job undergoes this horrible thing. And his friends show up because he's suffering. And they sit down with him. And they sit with him there. Because sometimes there's just nothing to be said and there's nothing to be done. And then they get it wrong because they open their mouths and start trying to explain it. But in the beginning, they do a great job. Yeah. So she was that for me. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit. The, the two days that you're in the hospital, um, what, what was going through your mind? And what kind of emotions were you feeling in that? And, and how, how was God present in those two days? Well, a lot of despair, um, a lot of sorrow, a lot of wondering why this had happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of us, even even us, like you think that if you do things right, right, if you follow the book, if you if you pray the right prayers, right. if you um, go to the doctor like you're supposed to, if you if you eat the right food, like if you do everything you're supposed to, that things are supposed to turn out well. Right. It's just not true. Like, um, so I felt just angry and sad and disappointed and angry at myself. I don't know that I was angry at God, but I was most certainly angry at myself. And um, I think it has a lot to do with my identity as a mom. Like, it's real basic that the expectation for a lot of women, I would say in our culture, is that you should be able to bear and con- you should conceive and bear a child. Like that should be a thing you can do. It's just not true. It's not true for everyone. Right. Um, and I was just so angry that something that had come really easily now wasn't going to happen. Um, and that my baby had to suffer. Like, because yeah. that's, as a parent, that's the thing you want to, to save them from at all costs. Like I would lay down my life for my children and I couldn't. That wasn't my right. choice to make. So um, I knew God was there. I knew God was present. I knew that, you know, if anyone, God knows what it's like to lose a child. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. God was present on Calvary mm. in a few places. Mm. Um, in the mournful parent who sees their child suffering. In, in the suffering body of Christ mm. who knows what it is in God's own body to suffer. So, yeah, it was, it was a lot of that. And, I, and then I think um, a lot, you know, just resignation that this was going to be what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so later in processing, I would say that I got to the place where I knew this would always be a part of me. Mm-hmm. It would be a part of my story, but it didn't have to be my whole story. Mm. That this could be integrated into the whole right. um, and didn't have to define it. It definitely felt like that in those few first, first yeah, few days. Yeah, I bet. Um, that, that leads me to think about our scripture this morning, some of what you were talking about there. I, I want to read that for you all this morning. It comes from Isaiah uh, chapter 63, verse 9, and it says, In all their suffering, God also suffered, and God personally rescued them. In God's love and mercy, he redeemed them, God lifted them up, and carried them through all the years. 
I really think this verse has a lot of importance in your story. What you were talking about, how, how God was there receiving your baby into God's arms, um, I think is a beautiful picture of how God is present with us in the midst of such tragic things like this. Um, and that God's able to, even in the midst of that, uh, be able to, to suffer as well. I think that's a really important thing to be able to say about God. You know, I think a lot of times um, God is is described as being this perfect being, which means that God cannot experience pain or suffering. And I just don't think that that's true. Um, and and I think that what you're talking about there uh, d- describes this idea that that God suffers with us, um, and that that idea that God on the cross as well. Um, proves that God can suffer, that God experiences pain, uh, I think is really important, um, not just today, but any day, mm-hmm. um, to, to know and to affirm. I agree. Um, well, and you talk about the perfection of God, and so we can think of perfect as being kind of a, a static thing, right? Like, um, like, say you made a perfect meal, and it was so Instagram-worthy, right. and it was just like <laughs> picture-perfect, gorgeous colors, gorgeous plating. Well, that's not what the perfection of the meal is supposed to be. The perfection of the meal is supposed to be in the flavor and the taste and the nourishment. Um, so similarly with God, I don't think God, God's perfection is about being stationary or, mm-hmm. or still, but God's perfection is in relationship right. in and love. in love. Yes. yes. And so it makes perfect sense that um, when you're perfect in love as God is, that love means you feel what the beloved feels, right? Like I think all of us, when someone we love deeply is suffering, we feel that. It echoes in, in our souls as we see them experiencing it. Um, and God knows us so much more intimately than any of us can hope to know one another. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, just talk a little bit about maybe how God was present with you afterwards. I know that mm-hmm. that was a difficult time and, and, and maybe even the ongoing reality of the, of the loss um, because it's not like it just happened once. Right. Um, well, and, and, and I cried it over, and it's yes, over, right? Right. No, it's not like ripping off a Band-Aid and, hey, you're done. Um, it's hard. Like, the due date that year was hard. Like, I knew that was a day when I'd be unfit to be with people. And so I just holed up in my house. And everyone has to figure out their, their way of moving through grief, because grief is not a linear process. We would love it to be. The books about it usually are. It's not. Like, it swirls back and forth. It goes this way for a while, and then all of a sudden, you, you get swept right back to where you feel like you started, and it's so hard. Um, So it took an understanding and supportive spouse Mm -hmm. that let me talk about the feelings, right, because you have all the feelings. Um, It took people who were further down the road than I was that I could see that they had experienced this kind of pain and anguish and loss, and it didn't kill them. They were ahead of me in the journey, and I could look at them as a pioneer in which way I could possibly go with this. And it took counseling. I I think a lot of it, I mean, I think everybody needs counseling at certain times in their lives more often than we need to, than we like to admit. And there's some stigma around that sometimes in our culture. But I knew I needed to work through my stuff, that my stuff was dark and painful, and I needed to hold it up and speak it and bring it into the light so that we could look at it and see what we should do with it. So yeah, I went to a, I dragged my husband to a counselor to make sure he was okay, because I couldn't be, I mean, I could never be his pastor, but I certainly couldn't be his pastor then. Um, 
But then I went to counseling for months, um, and then I still have my counselor kind of on retainer, and I go as needed. Um, and I participate. Part of it is I don't want my child to be forgotten. I think that, you know, a lot of our faith has to do with remembering God and who God is and who we are and who we are in relationship to God. And so one of the things that our faith teaches us is that there's power in remembering. There is such power in remembering. And if his name is spoken and if his story is told and if good, if good comes from his life, as brief as it was, um, then his life has meaning. And so as a family, we've done um, the March for Babies, which, you know, through the March of Dimes, which tries to help uh, mommies and babies have healthy and positive outcomes. Um, I participated, there's an event called the Wave of Light. It happens every October 15th uh, in different time zones when it becomes 7 p.m. Candles are lit. They stay lit for an hour, and then it happens in the next time zone. And so this Wave of Light passes across mm. the earth. And so um, last year, I was a speaker at the inaugural BFW event. Um, we speak his name in my house. My oldest knows that he has two little brothers and one's with God, and he asks me questions about him. Usually at really awkward times, like in the grocery store right. when I'm just trying to find the mac and cheese. He's, Mom, what about Brennan? With you? I'm like, oh, um, I don't know. Let's get the macaroni and cheese and let's talk about that. Because yeah. I think there's something to be said for being open. It's a gift that I think we have in this day and age that wasn't necessarily given to people in different generations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it turned out that my husband's grandparents his Mima and Pipa experienced loss of a child as well. So my father-in-law uh, has a three as the birth order on his birth certificate. He's the second as far as he knew, but they experienced the loss between their firstborn and their third child. Um, and Mima was able to talk with me about that and share that with me. Um, because unfortunately, sometimes when you experience suffering, it opens the door for others who've experienced it to talk with you about it. Um, so that's one of the ways I think God redeems our suffering is that exactly in those places that we are most broken, most hurt, most vulnerable are those places where God's grace can, can come through. And we can offer that to others who've had a similar experience. A couple of quick wrap-up questions. Um, I, I want to address the, this, the, this question of why do bad things happen to good people? Um, and uh, you know, I, personally, I think that it's not a simple answer. You know, you've touched on it a little bit. You know, we do all these right things and we expect right things to continue to happen. And I think what we've learned in life is that that's just not the case. You know, bad things happen and we can't always explain it. That's true. Um, I think that God, as part of creating humanity, gave us free will. Right. And I think that since the beginning of time, we've used that free will, not always in the ways God would desire it. And I think that sin and that evil stack up over time so that no generation comes in to, the, to, to an Eden. We don't have right. that anymore. We have a, right. a, a stockpile of sin and evil to deal with. And I think that that plays itself out in different systems and in different ways, in different lives. Um, I think it impacts all of us. I think that um, sometimes there's no way of explaining why we don't get what we deserve. But the flip side of that is... I also know that I sin and fall short. And even though I try to be a good person, what I really deserve is not the grace that God gives me. Mm. What I've earned right. is not everlasting life. And so, yeah, bad things happen and, and there's not a good explanation and it's not what God chooses or wills for our lives. Right. 
but God has chosen and willed that we have eternal life. God has redeemed even the most broken, horrible situations. God took the cross of all things. Um, Oh, there's one over there. So God took the cross. You know, so that's a sign of brutal torture and death in in the ancient world. God took it, redeemed it, said this is going to be the sign of everlasting life, of salvation, of redemption for my people. That's amazing what God can do with broken, horrible, messy things. And I think, you know, it's really important to to recognize that the the well-meaning church member, you know, who who wants to say that there's a reason for this, you know, sometimes there's just not a good reason. And I think it's really important to note that God doesn't make these bad things happen. God God's not responsible for the sin and the evil in the world, but God is responsible for the redemption of it. I think that's a really important point. So finally, what would you say to someone who's experiencing pain and suffering? would you want them to know about God's role in it, about um, what, what they need, what, um, what, where they can go for help, resources, et cetera? I know you touched on that a little bit. Yes. Um, so there's some um, perceptions out there that God um, makes these sort of things happen to build character in you. I don't think so. I think God can teach you lessons in a lot of ways, and I don't think um, making life miserable is one of them. Right. Um, <laughs> So I would say, so <laughs> I love Adam Hamilton, that famous yeah, yeah. United Methodist Church pastor. The, um, he always talks about, one of the things I love in some of his messages is he'll say, the worst thing is not the last thing. Mm. So that's one of the things, if I were to try to offer uh, words to someone when it was time for that, not when they're sitting Shiva, not in that first week after something terrible's happened, but later we can affirm that the worst thing is not the last thing. The last thing is everlasting life it, with God. Um, so no matter what the worst thing is that happens in our lives, it's not the last thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the affirmation of God's presence with us, that God does not deny or abandon us no matter what happens. Even in the cross of Christ, God was absolutely present to that pain and suffering. If God can be present to that, God can certainly bear with us in whatever we're experiencing. Um, a few resources that I would share, particular to this uh, subject, in case you or someone you love has experienced this, um, there's an organization called MEND, M-E-N-D, and it stands for Mommy's Enduring Neonatal Death. It's a Christian organization, and it um, gives a place for families to connect and share their stories and learn to live life without their baby. Um, there's also a great resource uh, called a Memory Grows. They offer retreats. They're led by a United Methodist deacon, and they just bring together those who've experienced a similar loss to be able to speak these stories because they're such power yes. in being able to give voice to our experience. Keeping it in, in silence doesn't help anyone in the long run. And then um, my friend Allison, the uh, pastor's wife who came and sat with me, she actually uh, created an organization in memory of their daughter, Mercy. It's called Team Mercy, and it offers uh, grants and scholarships to the siblings of a family who are experiencing child loss so that those siblings can have access to mental health resources, or maybe um, do something they were going to do anyway before all the bills of, Mm. because you know what, even though you don't bring your baby home, you still get all the bills. Um, But it gives financial support so they can maybe still go to camp or still go to daycare or still continue with some normal aspect of their lives, even as their family reorganizes around this event. So those are a few resources um, I would offer in particular. Jessica, thank you so much. I think this has been really, really rich, and I appreciate you uh, being willing to be open and vulnerable and share 
your story with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah.